Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey there, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 99. Today's guest name is Mark Jordan. Mark Jordan has been an investment banker for many decades. He started in the business in the 80s and has a ton of experience that he's willing to bring on the show today. Honestly, this has been one of my favorite ones I've done in a long time because I think there's so much confusion out in the marketplace on what is an investment banker, what are the different types, how they get paid, what's the difference between an investment banker and a business broker, what's the process, is it worth it to hire them, should you pay the fee, all these different things that are all over the place. Mark and I roll up our sleeves and we walk through every one of those topics so you can walk away with complete clarity on all of the different things that you need to ask to hire the investment banker, the process, going in eyes wide open, and then ideally so you can start working on all these things today so you can maximize the value of your company, maximize your outcome and get what you want, which I think one of the best and most gratifying things that I had with the interview with Mark is that all the hard work that we're doing at GEXP Collaborative with building these growth and exit plans, it's doing a lot of this preparatory work that has to be done anyways. So why do it at the last minute when you're going to hire an investment banker, do it ahead of time and control the process, mitigate your fees and and mitigate the headaches that these investment bankers are going to have because they have to clean up this mess and clean up these things if you're not doing it ahead of time. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Mark. It is a ton of information that is valuable to almost everybody in the process. And as an entrepreneur, it's all the stuff that I wish I would have known ahead of time. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Mark. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Mark, how are you doing today? Great, Ryan. I'm looking forward to having you on the show. I have, uh, I've met lots of investment bankers over the years, um, and we have not actually had one on the show that is able to walk us through the entire process, which I, you know, after sitting down and talking to you and, uh, you know, going back through the history and where you, all the different things that you've gone through, I figured, you know what, this is an awesome time to sit down and like, let's go from the start. And how do we select an investment maker and all the ins and outs? Because I think there's a whole lot of confusion from the entrepreneur's perspective, maybe not from advisors, but the roles of investment bankers versus brokers, how people get paid, when they should be hired, what, you know, the yeah. different questions they should ask. So um, before we dive into it, let's, uh, let's give the listeners who don't know who you are a little bit of a backdrop. And uh, you've been doing this for a long time. So give us maybe a little bit of the uh, intro on how you got into investment banking, because I think that's an important part of your background and your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love, by the way, around what you guys are doing, just to to bring focus and clarity to and, and sort of cut through the noise out there in the marketplace, because it is so confusing for business owners. And I think that confusion is a big part of what led me to where I am today. Years ago, when I first finished graduate school, I was actually uh, on the other side of the table in the sense of working in business succession planning, but it was more internal planning and keeping businesses and family. And as as time marched on, I saw this huge void in the marketplace, particularly the middle market, which I'm sure we'll talk more later on about the different segments of the market. But I saw this big void that there were these large firms out there that served the stuff you read about in the Wall Street Journal, 
Then there was a lot serving the small businesses, but just not a lot in the middle market, particularly that served it in a way that brought a unified process and system and uh, perseverance and passion to the process. And so that led me after graduate school and years of doing really more internal succession planning to create uh, what ultimately became Vercor. Well, and I think it's interesting too, because it's, you, you know, you and I had talked about the fact that you were doing in the quote unquote succession is the estate planning, the tax planning, all the internal stuff. And yeah. so you have an interesting perspective that that has also options in the overall realm of exits, but you decided to go the route of the investment banking, which I, I think is, is very needed in finding the right people that are out there. So you know, what's your definition of the investment banker? What role do they play? And let's kind of get some of the table stakes of like the size companies and, uh, you know, where the, where the investment banker actually plays in the process. Yeah, that's, it's interesting because you're starting off with one of the most confusing things of all, and that's just the term investment banking. You know, what does that even mean? Because it means so many different things to so many different people. And I think it's confusing because it, it does encompass a very broad, Framework. It encompasses things like IPOs, uh, corporate finance, debt financing, mergers and acquisitions advisory, so many different things. And ultimately, in the world that we operate in, investment banking really it's a segment of that. And that segment is mergers and acquisitions advisory services, which essentially means this: you've got really three, uh, three, three groups of people that have three different objectives. One group is I want to sell my company completely and I'm done with it. I'm tired of pushing the ball up the hill. I'm ready to move on and do something else. So that's an outright sell. Then you have the other group, which is, you know, I'm, I'm excited about continuing to do what I'm, do, what I'm doing now. Uh, I'm not burnt out. I have a lot of passion, but I want to take some chips off the table. I want to diversify. Uh, I want to diversify my portfolio. So that's what we call a private equity recap, where they're really selling part of their company and then they keep part of it. And then the third group are those that are looking to acquire a company. So those are the three broad groups that really encompass what's what we call M&A advisory, which is really a subset of investment banking. Uh, and then within that, you really have three types of investment bankers or M&A advisors in the marketplace, which I've already alluded to a, a minute ago, but basically the three segments Let's, let's bookend them with segment number one is what we'll call the main street segment. That's that segment that's the neighborhood dry cleaner drugstore. Let's call that businesses that let's say would be under $5 million of transaction value. All right. And that's typically someone who's looking to buy a job. So that's one end. The other end of the spectrum is what you read about in the Wall Street Journal. That's the large transaction space. Well, let's call that. 200 million in transaction value and above, all right? And then you have all this stuff in the middle, which is really, you would get many different answers if you ask people to define it, but let's call it that five to 10 million on the low side. That's the, the very low side. That five to 10 is actually kind of a gray area, but say for sure the 10 to 150 million, 200 million size is what we'll call the middle market. And then that's further divided into what, what's typically referred to as the lower middle market and the upper. And that lower middle market is generally 10 to $50 million in transaction value. So that, that really kind of lays out the different segments of, 
of people that do what we do. Well, I think that's it's awesome, uh, a foundation that is super necessary because a lot of people don't know that and they don't know who they're sitting in front of. And, you know, even for some clarification too, because, you know, I think a lot of owners, you know, and when you're talking enterprise value, I mean, a $5 million company could be a million dollars in EBITDA times five. So that puts you at that 5 million bucks. So, you know, these, these numbers are the, what you're selling them and going to market for, correct? That's exactly right. Yes. That's the, the, what were the actual transaction value. So that's ultimately what the, what the person would put in their pocket at closing. And you're right. So that if you wanted to translate that to an EBITDA number, that earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, you know, the middle market generally starts with the 2 million EBITDA number and up. Well, and it's so interesting, Mark, I was at this uh, conference and, you know, there's an investment banker and there was a, a PE firm and a couple other people and they're talking about this stuff and they throw up this sheet about where everybody plays. And, you know, most of the people in there are probably 5 million in revenue, you know, five to 10 million in revenue. Yeah. So you start doing run these numbers and going, I'm not even sitting in front of the right person at all. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's, it's, and it's the, the thing a lot of people don't realize is that there's th- actually three distinct processes too that's, that, that go into deploying how you get the job done. In the Main Street market, it's really much more akin to let's call it a real estate transaction or real estate process. And, and it's not bad or good, they're just different. You know, a real estate agent's the ones that generally do really well, they have a lot of listings and they rely on a co brokerage network to actually sell the listing. They're usually not selling their own listing. So it's a really high volume kind of a, you know, a process. That's the, the main street, the large transaction process. When you think about it, there's not a lot of companies that can acquire Time Warner, right? Mm-hmm. So right. There's usually only a small universe and it's much more of a financial engineering process that goes into it. You can imagine the complexity of these multi-billion dollar transactions, but the stuff in the middle market, it's really much more of a marketing methodology. The financials aren't that complicated. So it's really about how do you reach out into the appropriate segments, the appropriate universe, if you will, to find the right candidates who will have the right strategic fit. So it's a much more marketing oriented process in the middle market. It's, and that's a great way to put it and articulate it because I, you know, I've a lot of people go, what's my business worth? And it's, well, you know, your business is worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And that means it's more of an art, not a science. It's not just some, you know, number that your CPA spits out on a bunch of spreadsheets, which is a great benchmark, but it's not necessarily what someone's going to pay for it. Oh, and you're so right in that. I mean, you guys know this because of the the great work you guys do in helping business owners get prepared and to really, you know, bring focus into their planning. But, you know, we know what all the the value drivers are out there. There's 20 plus value drivers that buyers look at. And what's interesting is when business owners, you know, particularly in conversations they'll have with one another about, oh, what's your company worth? What's mine worth? They read an article. They went to a seminar. (laughs) The reality is it's not just a simple matter of a multiple of earnings. It's things like, What's your customer concentration like? What's your trajectory like? Do you have good second line management? There's all these other variables so that go into really establishing what the value is. Well, and let, let's let, let's go and actually peel that apart because I think you you touched on it and I, and I want to really actually dive into it from your perspective because of how you guys go and have the conversations you're having. And so maybe we're jumping ahead of the process, but I think because you brought it up is, you know, Maybe kind of give us some stories or an example, Mark, where like, because you have to go and you're, you're representing 
the seller. So you're going in there and trying to sell it. Actually, you know, let's not, let's not drive it, but let's make sure we come back to the value drivers because I, I think that's towards the conversation that you're going to end up having with the potential buyers. But before we do that, maybe let's start with the process that you guys go through yeah. because you know, the value drivers is something that you're, you're, you're having to pitch and you're going to have to explain that stuff at some point. But maybe let's go back to how, what is the process that you normally go through and in order to get that um, company ready and actually yeah. bring it to market? Well, actually, you know, the value drivers, you, you brought it up actually at, at a, an appropriate spot because it's one of the early things we do because step number one in our process before we ever even consider engaging, signing an engagement with a client is we do what we call a market value assessment. It's a gratis assessment that we do to determine what's a realistic value the company will bring in the marketplace. It's not a full-blown valuation or appraisal. We could certainly do those. Those are very expensive. You don't, you don't need that. Uh, what we do is a very condensed version. Uh, it's something that we uh, uh, gather information from the client. We're going to get some historical financial information, some customer concentration information, some, some, some appropriate quantitative uh, analytical information that we're going to get. But the second piece we're going to get is what, is what we were just talking about. We're gonna, we have a value driver worksheet that we have the client or the prospective client complete, and they grade themselves on all these different value drivers so that we have a picture of where they're at. Because here's the thing, Ryan, you know this, is that business uh, uh, prospective buyers, they're not looking for perfect companies. They really don't exist. They're fine with with challenges and opportunities because that's something that they can bring to the table to leverage and then make the company better. So step one is determining what's a realistic value range for the company in the marketplace today. And then secondly, it's then have a calibrating conversation with the prospective client to make sure that's within a range that they would be comfortable with. Now, we don't share that. We, would, we don't share that with prospective buyers ever. That's just mm-hmm. an internal calibrating conversation. And then once that's done, it's engagement agreement signing. And next step is the fact finding. So we, we do a lot of fact finding, more quantitative information, more qualitative, so that we can prepare a deal book or a confidential information memorandum, as they're often referred to, a blind summary, and some other corresponding documents that we ultimately then use to go out into the marketplace, which is uh, uh, the next step, which is the marketing phase. And one of the things that, that we do to really add fuel to that part of the process is we look at it really through uh, several different marketing quadrants. We look at quadrant, one quadrant is who would be a buyer that would view our client as a new market with an existing product or service? Because that's a, a synergistic fit that might get us more value. The second quadrant we look at is who's a buyer that will look at our client as a new product in an existing market. There's additional synergy that could be achieved there. And then the third quadrant is existing products and existing markets. That's the obvious low-hanging fruit competitors, if you will, in the marketplace. And then the last quadrant is what we would consider the private equity quadrant, which is there's not really any synergy there, but there's uh, you know a long-term opportunity for the private equity group to bring strategic and sort of professional value mm-hmm. to the equation. So that that marketing phase is really uh, the part where we're reaching out, we're exchanging information, we're screening buyers, ultimately landing on a small subset who we get letters of intent from. 
and then ultimately select the best letter of intent and move to due diligence and ultimately closing. So, and I love the, the, the synopsis on those steps. And I, I want to actually kind of peel those apart a little bit. Um, so that way the listeners can really get it under the, the hood look at this because, you know, even let's, let's kind of maybe mark, go back to step one. And, you know, when you're talking about the value drivers and why these are important, why learning them are important, because, you know, how I've worded it in our presentation or in uh, other interviews is the value drivers are essentially the opposite of the risk factors for the client or for the buyer, right? And so it's like, how transferable is your profit stream to yeah. someone else? Yeah. So yeah. how, you know, when you're doing that, you know, you know, explain to us like, you know, why, how, why, how, and why is it so important to know those before the buyers come in? Because yeah, yeah, and explain where you guys end up using those factors and those responses throughout the process. Yeah, well, it's it, it, it first it comes down to one thing, and that is just sim- simple self awareness. I mean, the mm-hmm. more self aware a business owner is of who their company it really is today. What does it really look like to an outside person, right? It's it's hard because it's kind of like your child. It's you know people ask me about my children. You know I see them through a lens that's different than someone else would see them through. So having that outside party to really help you see through the lens, kind of take the rose-colored glasses off and look at it with reality. Once you're self-aware, then you have an opportunity to make improvements and make changes. Right, So you understand the value drivers. Now you see exactly where you grade along the spectrum. Then you know where you can really focus your energy on making improvements on those. And then, and then and last... Some those, and some of those... Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, Mark. No, but like, some of those value drivers, you know, you know, I'm sure with all of the ridiculous amounts of deals that you've done, you know, some of those you can't fix and being aware of them better not than, than not being aware of them, right? But some of them are going to be quick cleanups versus some of the ones that, you know, might take years, you know, I don't know if you kind of yeah. get a couple examples on how you handle or a couple examples of one of those, uh, each of those buckets. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So we've got, in fact, those value drivers are broken up into internal and external value drivers. So you're right. The external ones you can't do anything about. For example, barriers to entry. That's a great example. Uh, you know, there's not a lot you can do about that in your overall marketplace. It, there's either high barriers or low barriers to entry. But being aware of that, helps you understand what you can and can't control as you go to market with your company. So that means a buyer that's going is looking for a deal that has high barriers to entry, there's really there's there's not a lot that's going to come of that because that's not something we can change within your company. But I'll tell you a great example of an internal driver that is oftentimes missing in, in middle market companies is second good strong second line management. Uh, and that is something that you can change in relatively short order. I mean, it's not it's 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 not easy, but you know it takes time and a process. But good second line management. I'll tell you another great internal variable that you can change pretty quickly are strong standard operating procedures. The more stuff you have systematized, it's back to the point you made a minute ago. It's more transferable then. So anything that you can make more transferable is going to have more value to a prospective buyer uh, down the road. So as you're going and doing these value driver assessments and everything like that, you know, how, like, I think there's a lot of timing misconceptions too that go on. Like when should I hire an investment banker? What's the, what's the yeah. process of picking one? And then how do people price them? Cause I know, I know I don't want to get too far, like right down the pricing, what maybe this is a good time for, but you know, some people charge retainers, some people don't. And how do that, how does that all fit into actually engaging? 
Yeah, that's that's a, a very important topic. Let's tackle the 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 timing and then the compensation piece the second. So the timing part, you know, you get different answers in this, but here's what we tell people. If you're if you want to be completely finished with your company. So you want to have a transaction and you want to be completely done, you better get you better be started about 3 years in advance of when you want to be out because it's not that uncommon that a deal will close and and the buyer, um, excuse me, the seller will have some sort of transitional commitment. You know, now if it's a huge company buying your company and you have a company with great second line management and great systems, then it's a lot more likely. But if you look a lot more like a, a lot of you know lower middle market companies look, not a lot of second line management, the systems aren't particularly robust, you, know, you, you may have a transitional period of time. You're probably going to have a transitional period of time of one to two years that is needed before you're really completely done. So that, that would be the longest period of time. So you need to start the process now if you want to be out three years from now. On the other hand, if you're saying, you know what, I want to do more, we talked about earlier, a private equity recap, where you really sell part of your company and you stay on, then the process to get a deal done, Brian, as you know, is typically 12 months. That's a pretty good rule of thumb to take. So if you want to see, experience a liquidity event, then you better launch the process a year before you want to see that liquidity event happen. And then moving kind of to the second part of your question about compensation, which ties to selecting an investment banker, then you better start the selecting of the investment banker process you know, several months before you're really ready to launch a deal uh, and, and have that launch date where you're a year out. And when you start looking at the different kinds of, of M&A advisors, investment bankers out there, you'll see um, a, a couple of different broad compensation uh, schedules. Um, I said, within the different segments. So the Main Street segment, you're going to see generally a very, very small front-end fee, maybe a few grand, maybe. And you have generally a perf- the performance fees that are paid when the deal closes are all over the map in the Main Street marketplace. Uh, very different, though, as I said earlier, there's not a whole lot of front-end work that needs to be done. But in the middle market, but uh, sorry, I mean, you could yeah. like sorry to just on the main street just to make a range for people. Like, I mean, you could be anywhere between five to twelve percent. Oh, at, oh, I think yeah, five would be unbelievably low. That's a, that would be like a friend yeah. knocking on doors. For you, That's right? right. It's a friend doing you a favor. You, it's very common to see those in the ten percent uh, uh, performance fee range in the uh, main street marketplace. Uh, and again, that that can change a lot depending on you know how. Uh, uh, how aggressive that firm is trying to be and bringing on deals, but that's a pretty good range to think about. Uh, in, in the middle market, you're, you're going to have front-end fees, commitment fees, retainer fees, whatever you want to call them, that are going to be higher than three or four or five grand. They're all over the map. I would say a pretty good range is somewhere in the uh, fifteen to twenty thousand on the low side, up to. You know, forty to fifty on the high side, depending on the complexity of the deal, depending on how big the deal is. Kind of that's a that's a big range. But those fees are really primarily there to make sure that the M and A firm wants to make sure that they have a buyer that's really committed. They're not getting rich off of those front end fees, needless to say, uh, or at least generally speaking. And it's, and it's your time or your or the investment banker's time to really see how 
well, what kind of hot mess are you dealing with or how clean is that? That's it? exactly right. And, and there's a lot of front end work that goes into it. There's the deal book, the blind summary. We prepare a very robust deal room, you know, an, an encrypted deal room that has documents in it for exchange of information. So we want, you want to make sure the client's committed and make sure that uh, everything sort of set up and positioned to launch a program in the beginning. So you get front end fees that are somewhere like that. And then those are credited deducted from, if you will, the back-end performance fee. And the back-end performance fee is where we, that's our payday. That's what we're really in it for. And those, again, are all over the map. Sometimes they're tiered in many different ways. But if you take a formula fee of 5% of the first $10 million, and then 2 to 2.5% two of everything above that, you can slice it many different ways and have varying different tiers. But if you total that number up, you're going to end up at somewhere in that range, generally speaking. So if you lined up, you know, let's say 100 M&A firms on a $20 million deal on the fee schedule I just gave you, that would be somewhere between, call it seven dollars and $800,000 back-end fee. And if you calculate it with that sort of 5 and 2 or 5 and 3% formula, you could come to that seven or 800,000 different formulas, but it's going to end up somewhere in that range on a $20 million transaction. Now, the higher the deal gets, when it gets up to 50, 80, 100 million, the percentages go down uh, you know, significantly as you start getting up into the higher valuation range. But just as a, a kind of a quick sort of perspective, a $20 million deal would look something like that. And then you minus from that, you deduct from that whatever the front end fee was that was paid. Well, and I, and this is probably a good segue too, because a, a couple of things that I want to, as I'm thinking back in my old perspective, when I was sitting at the table is one is, holy shit, that's a lot of money. I should do it myself. <laughs> and then the other one is, um, so I want to address what your thoughts are on that and, and the, 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 the risks of not going with an investment banker versus going with an investment banker. But before we do that, um, I want to circle back to what you were talking about in the timing. And I completely agree with you on the three years. And how often do you have it happen, Mark? And I know a lot of investment bankers do, and I've seen the owners do it too, where they call you when they want out in three months. And how do, like, how do they... So the, the person that wants out this year, what are they actually dealing with? And you know, how do you actually handle those calls? Yeah, I, I, I'm, you're right. That is what we get the vast majority of the time is they're ready to take action now. And, and certainly, you know, in an ideal world, what we wish is, is that they had taken steps long before that to position their company better and to make it much more appealing and much more presentable and, and, and to have the value enhanced well in advance of that. So it, the answer of what we do depends on what their objective is. We're, we try to be very objective driven and not agenda driven. And so if it's a buyer, if it's a, a seller that wants to be out now because he is just tired of pushing the ball up the hill and he didn't want to push it up any further, or he may see some external variables on the horizon that he's concerned about, any number of personal variables like that, mm -hmm. then what we have to work with, Ryan, is whatever it is at that particular point in time. And we, we, you know, we, we help them understand the picture today and here are the strengths and growth areas and here are the weaknesses and here's how this is going to impact the deal. And that's just something they have to accept, right? Ideally, though, what's happened is it's been years before that. 
and they go, you know what? I see in the future, this is something I'm going to want to do in a few years. So what can I do today to position my company to achieve maximum value down the road? I think that that pretty much answers what I was kind of thinking. And I, and I'm got to imagine your hardest part of your job and every investment banker or broker out there is, okay, so yes, I am tired. The industry is taking a shit and I, I do want to do something else, but I still want full value for it. <laughs> oh man, you, Brian, you've got, that is the, the number one challenge is calibrating expectations because you're exactly right. It's like, you know, and not only full value, but full value plus, 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 because they read an article somewhere and someone got <laughs> a multiple or worse than that, they took a phone call from someone. Oh my gosh, that just happens all the time. And this someone said, oh, we're, we're paying X. And they're, all they're doing is using a bait and switch ploy. And that's not really realistic. So we have to really drive hard. And, and we're one of the things that we, we really focus on our, at, at Vercor is setting and managing expectations. We're just simply not willing to tell people what they want to hear and then have them be disappointed at some point down the road. So there's a lot of tension that we have to manage when it comes to that point right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and uh, I think that bait and switch comment that you made is a, is a nice dovetail back into the value of having someone in the middle of, of you and selling. Um, and uh, I, I maybe let's get, let's get your bait and switch definition and example because i think that's happening a lot right now it is happening a lot and it's been happening for a long time and in 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 the simplest way to to the simplest example to give you is people someone calls you on the phone and they say generally what they say is we're representing someone who's looking to buy and it's nuanced they'll say a company like yours they won't necessarily say you're for a specific company and the the client the seller the business owner gets excited oh really yeah and they go well what kind of value are you looking at because i'm not really looking to sell unless it's a home run and the person goes well you know it's they they it's not uncommon for them to pay multiples of you know, six to 10 times to which the business owner goes, that's exciting. And the person goes, great. Now let me send you the information we need. Uh, <laughs> and look, we could, I wrote a whole book about this. We get about all the mistakes that were already made at that point in time, but then they start sending them information. And then here's what I call, then here's what happens. What I like to refer to as the death of a thousand paper cuts over the next three, four, five months, they get the business owner gets worn down with information requests. And then finally, what happens, the buyer says, oh, you know what? We've discovered this thing here or that thing there. Now we can't pay you that value. It's going to be X, which is you know 50% less than they were expecting. And now the business owner falls victim to, well, I've invested so much time. I hate to see it not happen. And that, that's basically the most common bait and switch example. Uh, yeah, and and which is yeah, and I've I've uh, I've I got the stomachache of when that happened to us multiple times, and you know it, it's um it because by the time you're just, you're mentally gone, like you can't sell yeah. and continue to run your company and do all this stuff, and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I got a multi million dollar payday, and like wait a second, totally distracted, numbers yeah. decrease, and you weren't ready. Um, but you know the the other reason that I've been seeing this is there's so many private equity firms and non-deployed capital, the dry powder that's sitting on the sidelines where people have to spend this, but yeah. they're not. So they're, they're, they're essentially distracting these owners all over the place. And I think this is going to go back to, you know, the, the role that the investment baker, baker plays and how you guys go to market to pay for your fee is that yeah. the, these people want to avoid 
going through that because they can get a good deal. And I interviewed this gentleman, Ryan Moran, last uh, week, and he he articulated it wonderfully. He said that the, you know, as owners, you think that they have the prize, which is the check, when the reality is you have the prize, which is the cash flow. So yeah. you know, I think these owners need to realize yeah. that they have the thing that everybody wants. So if you flip the power dynamic, you should be able to get what you want if you go through the right process. You're right. And, and I think what, what happens so many times is business owners, they, there's a couple of misnomers out there. And one is, is they think they're hiring an investment banker to get them more money. And you know what? That's likely going to happen. But the reality is the big thing they're hiring them for is what you just alluded to a minute ago, and that's managing a process. Because the process starts from the very first time your phone rings, right? And so an investment banker knows how to manage the process. They understand the obstacles, the pitfalls, the opportunities, where to push, when not to push. I mean, the list is endless. And that's really what you're hiring an, uh, an investment banker for is to manage the process the right way. And the, out, the, the, the byproduct of that is likely a higher value, but also another byproduct of that is getting the deal done. Because when you don't know how to manage the process, oftentimes you just don't get the deal done. And that's the other byproduct is, is getting that. And then thirdly, what you just talked about a minute ago, it's a massive distraction if you don't have an M&A advisor managing the process for it, it's a massive distraction. So they manage the process. You as a business owner keep running your company. That's where the win is. So I'll, I agree with you, but I'm going to give you the probably the perception that most of the listeners have is, yeah. well, I was at a trade show and I know this guy or gal or this yeah. supplier and they already made me an offer. So like, you know, I've already got the process. I already know them. And, you know, let's just, we're, we're just going to get the deal done and not have to pay you guys. Yeah, no, that's good. That's great. And I think it was either the third or fourth chapter, I think, in, in my book I wrote years ago, Selling Your Business, the, the easy way was that is negotiating with one buyer at a time. One of the biggest mistakes people make, because here's the problem. That sounds great. They're going to pr- uh, provide an offer and, uh, and, and it sounds good and it's wonderful. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. But what you don't know is what the marketplace would really pay for your business. What if it was mm-hmm. 30% more, 20% more? What if it was a better structured deal for the same value? There's all these things you don't know because you only dealt with one buyer. So the I- idea is to have multiple parties at the table at the same time. Then you know you're getting maximum value. You know you're getting a deal that's structured the best way and you've maximized the likelihood of getting it closed. But you're right. That is a very common uh, uh, you know, response that we, that we encounter. Well, and, and the, I just like, I like it to the, you know, if someone knocks on your house and says, Hey, I'll buy your house. And if you haven't listed it and you don't know what the, if the market's hot, not hot, what do people want and all that stuff, then how right. are you, how you, you mean, you might get the deal done, but you have zero idea how much you left on the table or if it's the right buyer, et cetera. Um, right. So well, maybe Mark, let's go into like, how do you take it to market? Because I think there's also a lot of people out there that just hire an M&A advisory friend who knows people in the industry or knows connections or something like that, you know, versus someone that only has a small Rolodex or a big Rolodex or just PE firms or strategic buyers. Like, you know, what is the definition of, you know, in the real estate, it's putting your house on the market in the main street. It's, you know, they throw it on their website and they've got listings for the, you know, the sub 10 million. 
Yeah. How, how does your process or any other process like that work? And how, what should be people? What what questions should people be asking about the investment bankers process? Yeah, in in the middle market, it is a a, a fairly inefficient process at, in the market as a whole. So in the large transaction space, like we talked about, there's only a few buyers. So as a result, it, the buyer will likely be in your Rolodex, right? The you know the, uh, acquiring Time Warner, that buyer was in the Rolodex. It wasn't some big mystery, mm-hmm. as, you know, the, the small universe of people um, in the middle market. I mean, there are hundreds of prospective buyers. The, the likelihood that the buyer for any individual deal is going to be in the um, M&A Advisors Rolodex, it's not that high unless you're really niche driven. I mean, let's, let's take, for example, just someone that focuses on the IT space. Think how broad that is. I mean, there's so many subsets of that. There's application development, there's IT services or staffing, there's cybersecurity, the list is endless. So unless you're really refined into a, a deep, deep niche, it's unlikely the buyer is going to be on your Rolodex, so, which why your is, is why your question is so important. And I think that's what business owners have to ask is, how do you go about marketing a deal? And, and first, it's a tremendous amount of research using sort of that grid approach uh, that I talked about earlier. And really, it just comes from the old business school days of the Ansoft marketing matrix. That's all it really is, is, but it's intentional. And I think you find the vast majority of M&A firms, what they're looking to do is just go after one quadrant, the, the, the low-hanging fruit, the obvious people. Well, mm-hmm. anyone can figure that out. We want to spread out into the additional quadrants of potential strategic buyers that aren't in the Rolodex. And that requires just good old-fashioned research, man, just really digging deep, building an outreach, a set, outreach set of contacts who fit, you know, good, who would fit good strategic, uh, synergistic uh, uh, acquisition, and then contacting them. And you know what's interesting? Acquisitive-oriented companies, they love to hear from investment bankers because that's how they get a good half of their deals is from investment bankers in the marketplace. So that 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 research and marketing outreach is really key. It's not just going after the obvious low hanging fruit, and making ten or fifteen, you know, obvious calls. Well, and let's dive into like what happens when you actually how you're doing that. Because like, let's say you got a few hundred, you've done all this research of this one company. There might be the strategics, there might be the different geographic locations, there might be the different products and services and competitors. So explain how. What what the sim is because there's a lot I can't believe how many people don't know what that is and yeah. then how that integrates into your marketing approach and what the buyers are actually reading and why what what's important to them. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing they get actually even before they get the sim or the confidential information memorandum or deal book as it's uh, sometimes called as well is the first thing they get is a blind summary or an executive summary. So we assemble a little one pager that has enough information to communicate the value proposition, to communicate the opportunity, but not denoting or disclosing who the company actually is because people have to get something before they're going to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So the first thing they get from us... What's what's on that blind summary? So the blind summary is going to have some summary financial information, revenue, uh, COGS, uh, expenses, EBITDA number, very summary, though, very, mm-hmm. very concise. Last three, four years, last three years, maybe trailing 12 months. It's going to have some broad location like Northeast or uh, Southeast, not the city or state generally, because that would give away who the company is. It's going to have a, 
a historical brief narrative, maybe a paragraph or two, and then it's going to there's going to be an, a narrative about the service or product offering of the company, and then whatever the larger value proposition of the company is as well. That's the kind of things you're going to find on the on the executive summary. And people get that, then they say, oh, I'm interested or I'm not interested. Then they sign, the buyer signs a non-disclosure agreement at that point in time. And once that's signed, that's when they get the SIM or the confidential information memorandum. That deal book has very, uh, it's, you know, it can vary a lot from anywhere from 10 or 15 pages to 30 or 40, depending on the kind of deal and the complexity of the deal. But Matt, imagine that is a document that has, usually it's a deck in, in a deck format that they kind of evolve over time as to what buyers are interested in seeing. But that's going to have operations, history, more, more in-depth financial information, management, marketing. It's going to hit all the key functions of the company so that the buyer now has a clear, clearer picture, at least, of what the opportunity is. And that's after a non-disclosure agreement has been signed. Well, and and what I love about that, and and I'd love your feedback or your thoughts, because like I went through that process and you just kind of go, oh, we should have been running our company like this a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right, man. It's so... Because like you're in, in there, you're, you're, you're pitching your company, right? I mean, and I think that's why a lot of these startups that are raising money, they always have their exit strategy in the pitch book because people want their money back. But a lot of the, the entrepreneurs, they, they never really thought about it. So they never really thought from the end in mind. But and how does that, I mean, because it isn't the, the sim, I mean, it, it's the value drivers, right? It is. That's exactly right. It's value drivers. It's it's basically pulling up in front of your house, and what's the first thing people see? You know, that's the deal book is the first thing they see, uh, and and it is. It's it's unfortunate that business owners haven't spent more time in advance preparing, painting their house, right, uh, replacing some of the dry rot, and you know, doing some of those kinds of things. Figuratively speaking, of course, to get their their business position. Uh, you know, in the best possible way. So what are, you know, as that SIM goes, well, maybe let's, what is the quantity of outreach people should be expecting? And how many, so how many, uh, how many people got outreached? How many NDAs? How many SIMs? And then let's pick it back up, which is I'm assuming due diligence or something like that after that. Yeah. And and how many deal books are going to go out? It's a lot of times going to depend on the deal. Let's, let's compare and contrast. Man. Let's say you have a technology company with, a strong monthly recurring revenue stream. Okay, that that's going to one that's going to be in you know very high demand. You might have uh, fifty to seventy deal books go out. I mean, I, we've seen more than that, but I think that's a that wouldn't be uncommon at all. Certainly, you would have you know probably thirty five or forty is on kind of the low end up to sixty or seventy on the high end deal books go out. There's a lot. Now let's let's contrast that with a company, let's take a construction company that ha- that's a purely project-based, no recurring revenue, no anything, just purely eat what you kill, chain, you know, it's seasonal mm-hmm. and flows, a typical company like that. You know, you might have uh, 15 to 20 deal books go out. And, and of course, there's outliers, but I think that's a pretty good perspective to, you know, to get 
when you think about how many deal books would go out. It's interesting, Mark, too. I'm assuming the quantity of deal books that go out also represent the value or the multiple of EBITDA people get. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. No question about that. Those things, those are definitely, definitely directly correlated for sure. And once they, once they, uh, once the deal books go out, uh, the next step after that is this, this process of information exchange, depending on how um, enthusiastic the buyer is. So we have this deal room online that's set up and populated, I referenced earlier. So we give people access to certain parts of that, depending on their enthusiasm and how we view them as a quality buyer. At some point, though, we're going to get to the next step, which is going to be a conference call with the client, not a plant visit, a face-to-face, but a conference call. Now, the buyers want to get face-to-face as soon as possible, but that's not something that we let happen early in the process. The conference call, we're only going to let that happen when we've had some understanding from the buyer as to how they view value. So if their perspective on value is vastly different than what we're expecting, then we're not even going to get to that step. But as we narrow down the funnel from the deal book, so if there's you know, 40 deal books that go out, you know, there's, there's going to be a good half of those that are, have significant interest. And out of that half that has significant interest, there's probably going to be half of that. So maybe somewhere between eight to 10 that we would end up doing conference calls with, with our client. And those are generally an hour, hour and a half long where they get to ask some key high level gating questions to the, to the client in a conference call format. And then subsequent to that is more information exchange. And then, then we get to the letter of intent, term sheet, whatever you know, descriptive phrase you want to use. But we're going to, at that point, get term sheets and letters of intent or some, some uh, uh, refined communication of what the, how they're viewing the value of the company. Uh, then it's plant visit time. We're going to select now from that group into a much smaller group. And there's going to be somewhere from you know, three to five plant visits on a typical deal. There could be more than that, but typical deal, three to five plant visits. Then it's time for final letters of intent. And then we, we negotiate all of those letters of intent at the same time and then ultimately select one buyer. And then you move into the part that's not so fun for the client <laughs> due diligence phase. You know what that's like, Ryan, you've been there before. Uh, and that's a, that's the, I liken it to a root canal without Novocaine, but it's, <laughs> you've got to go through the process to get paid. I mean, you just have to, for someone's going to wire you a $20 million, $30 million check, they have to dig into, uh, you know, your records. And that's mm-hmm. a 90 day process due diligence. You know, everyone tells you they're going to get it done in 45 or 60 days, but that's rare. It's usually, 90 days from signing of letter of intent until you get to closing. So um, I, I, I really appreciate you clearly walking through your process because that's how it should go. And that's how everybody should do it. Um, and my, my, here's just a little joke because here's what happens. People go to a trade show. They say, sure, let's do this. They say, here's the information. Can you send it over? The, the, the potential seller sends all the information, all the financials. They got no leverage. They got no control. And they're immediately sitting there without anything. Yep. Because, like you said, like even having the conference call of having you say, what is the, 
what is their definition of value? So you're not just giving away your financials and all of your negotiation chips. It'd be like yeah. trying to play poker by showing your hand immediately. That's right. That's right. And you know, the, the business owners, the ver- they make the very first mistake they make is even engaging in the phone call or the conference when someone <laughs> says their, their answer really should be, let me connect you with my advisor and he'll be happy to talk to you because the minute they say yes to anything, answer any questions, do anything. Uh, in fact, even the phone call, they've already opened themselves up to a breach of confidentiality because you, you know, you know the game and how quickly word can spread. So mm-hmm. that's another big part that business owners oftentimes shoot their, themselves in the foot by taking that phone call. Uh, and not having an advisor is the minute they do that. Now someone knows they're potentially interested in selling their company. And that person on the other end is not bound by confidentiality. They can mm-hmm. share that with anyone. Mm-hmm. So the LOI, I think there's a lot of gray area and how people handle it, where they see it in the process. I've seen a lot of people say, well, I've got an LOI and they think the deal is done. And yeah. then you yeah. had mentioned the fact that you have two different steps of the LOI. So what is your definition and in, in like in, in, Maybe even elaborate, Mark, on what you mean by terms, because I don't think a lot of people like realize that $20 million isn't just $20 million. There's a lot of terms and conditions that come with it. Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, it, it's funny because I wish I had a nickel for every time someone said, oh, I, I had an LOI for X. I could have sold my company for that. And I'm thinking, <laughs> no, that's that doesn't mean anything. But you, you basically, there's three main um phrase or, or, or uh, abbreviations you'll hear, IOI for indication of interest, LOI for letter of intent or letter of interest, and then term sheet. Those are the three main ones that you hear most often. And, and, and we use those terms kind of loosely throughout the process because early, the early phases of what I'll call the LOI, it's oftentimes not even an LOI. It could be something as simple as a, an email outlining Here's sort of our initial thinking because the buyer oftentimes doesn't want to, you know, invest a tremendous amount of forward energy and time if they don't feel like they're at least in the broad ballpark as well. So sometimes it's just an early, you know, it can be an email. It can even be a phone discussion where someone's outlining it. We just have to get some perspective to understand how they're viewing value to determine is it really worth keeping them engaged in the process. But when the time comes, which is, can't like I said earlier, it could be before a plant visit or after a plant visit, just depending on the situation. There's a formal document that generally is anywhere from two to five pages long. But list, there, there's really two broad types. One type is very specific. It goes into reps and warranties and all kinds of stuff. Then the other type is much broader. It just says, we expect to negotiate definitive purchase agreements that are going to have all these various uh, items in them. And that's the more common one. And that, that letter of intent doesn't bind or obligate the buyer to anything except confidentiality. The seller is typically bound by exclusivity, meaning during that 90-day time frame, they can't talk to any other prospective buyers. And that that basically provides the energy or the fuel to ultimately move to the purchase agreements and the definitive purchase agreements, which encompass the actual asset or stock purchase agreement, employment agreements, non-compete agreements, all those documents. Those are the ultimate things that until those are signed and money's wired, 
you don't have a deal. The letter of intent is just a framework for saying, this is what we both are working toward. Now let's see if we can get there. Mm-hmm. And the, the due diligence, all those documents that you talked about, I mean, that's that's just the seller trying to say, okay, is this actually what I'm talking about? Is this like, does the president have a non-compete or not? <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, it's yeah, the, yeah. Do the suppliers and the, the, the vendors have agreements. I mean, it's, it's cause if they're going to pay 20 million bucks, what's the risk with that? Right. I mean, so how have you, seen, you know, what, what are some of the biggest mistakes that people have as you, as you go, or maybe mistakes or eye openers that they have as they go through that due diligence and how does that reflect the terms and conditions and price? Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing is organization. You know, there, there's the more organized a business owner is with their, um, uh, you know, sort of material that they have. And this is back to the comments, so, sort of a, a theme throughout here that we see oftentimes is getting business owners prepared in advance. I mean, that's a huge, that's just so important. Well, this is one of the, probably the biggest thing business owners aren't prepared for is due diligence. And in an ideal world, they're, they're in advance, they've already gone through and had sort of a mock due diligence done and they have documents prepared. They're organized. That's in an ideal world that, that, that can happen. And that, that can happen, obviously, with the right planning and, and preparation in advance done. Um, and so, so when they're organized, then it creates a sense of confidence and a sense of trust for the buyer. The more disorganized, oh, I don't have this, oh, don't have that, uh, oh, let me see if I can find that, it creates a, a, a sense of lack of confidence, that's all. And mm-hmm. so I, I would say where it translates more to than value is getting the deal done. So if there are too many sort of nicks that the buyer, you know, let's put it this way, if there are too many emotional withdrawals that the buyer has to experience, then they start to get buyer's remorse, you know, like anyone would. So the more organized and together these the documents can be in advance, it, it's going to create more positive momentum. It's like a sporting event. And in, in, in some regards, momentum is very important. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like, all I can think of is, so we sold one of our branches years ago, it went years before we sold. So that's a long time ago now. But yeah. Like, hey, can you give me these employment contracts and your vendor or the the Canon license agreement for Duluth? And you're just like, uh, I think yeah. that's in the file cabinet in the storage <laughs> right. room for our first yeah. house because it's been 25 years. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Or we have a handshake. We don't really, we don't really do. We, we just have a handshake back then. Not really a big deal. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. <laughs> um, so, you know, as you look through that process, then, and what is the, you know. When, you, when you're finalizing the terms and conditions, who's got to stay? You know, what, maybe what are some of the biggest terms and conditions that people should be aware of? You know, like just to kind of you know contextualize that. So, how long people, you know, whether it's the owner or other key executives, how long they stay, or you know, what you know, escrow the or you know, different deal creative structures. What are some of the things that people should be aware of that will be um, implicated or impacted by the due diligence? Yeah, some of the some of the things. First, thinking at the, the the sort of big picture, the purchase agreement. You know, the the big part from a legal standpoint of the purchase agreement is a list of all these promises you're making. So you're making a lot of promises, and they're all they're all reasonable promises or promises that you should be comfortable making. They're everything ranging from I promise that I own this company to I promise I haven't 
fraudulently provided you with information. I mean, they're, they're reasonable promises, but you make all these promises. Obviously, the buyer wants the promises to be phrased in a way that benefits them. And the seller, our client, we want it to be phrased in a way that's very refined. For example, um, you know, I'd be happy to promise that uh, you know, I've always owned the company. That's an easy promise to make. A promise I would not be willing to make is there's never been an environmental uh, spill of any kind in the history of this piece of property. That's an unreasonable promise. The buyer would love something that broad that they're not going to get that. But you can promise that that's not happened during your on your watch while you've mm-hmm. owned the property, right? So it's finding that balance between the promises. And the second big part is what are the consequences if your promises turn out not to be accurate? So that's another big uh, aspect is there have to be consequences and those consequences have obviously monetary value to them. So that that leads then to how does the buyer go about collecting if any of those promises are broken? And mm-hmm. one of the ways they do that is to have some sort of a holdback or escrow where they will take a portion of the deal. And this is a negotiated point some percentage of the deal, and they'll put it in escrow for some period of time. That's a negotiated point as well. Maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year. Uh, and and that's, it's negotiated as to how long and the percentage. And as long as all the promises are kept, then you get that money at the end. If some of the promises aren't kept, then there's rules about how that money is distributed to the buyer if those promises aren't kept. And then there's lots of little derivations and combinations, things like, well, you don't collect until my, the value of my broken promises reach a certain amount. Below that amount, it's kind of like a deductible. So there's a lot of different combinations and, you know, and variances that, that come along with that. Well, and I, you know, I'm just going to put a plug in for all advisors out there because, you know, my dad and I did a lot of this stuff on our own and I watch a lot of people do it. Um, I've seen it. I, and you know, you might get, you get the, you get the, you know, the, the bait and switch or the, the, the bait and switch or whatever you want to, I'm screwing it up right now, but the, <laughs> you get yeah. the, the term that goes, the, the, the number that goes out there and then you go through all this stuff and you can kind of see as you've very articulated it so well, Mark, is that all the things that the people that you need on your team to be able to protect you from the people that do this all the time through, through due diligence, you know, yeah minimizing the price. And then like that whole last purchase agreement is what people, yeah. you know, when I've interviewed people after the fact or talked to people, it's, they get totally screwed in this because they don't know how, they don't have the right attorney that does M&A. Yeah. They don't have a CPA or an investment banker that's protecting yeah. them yep. from just accepting the first sheet that comes across. That's right. Yeah. And thank you. Cause using an M&A attorney is so crucial. It can't just be you know, just the regular attorney that used to, I'm sure does a fine job for you, but it's a different art form doing legal work on an M&A deal versus, you know, just a, a standard, uh, you know, contract, if you will. It's a, a, a very different art form to that. So it is crucial. Yeah. And this is not right. a master service agreement. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. You're right. And I think having a, you know, an M&A advisor quarterback that process, because as the business owner, they, you know, they have no idea what is reasonable and unreasonable. And that's, that's a big part of what we're trying to do is to quantify what's reasonable, what's unreasonable, and then make decisions accordingly. So as we're, I know we've, we're kind of probably getting to the time of wrapping up here. Well, you know, 
Mark, we've talked about a lot of stuff. And I think, you know, it's one of the clearest ways of someone going through the process and where uh, the investment banker fits and everything. Is there, is there one part of this that you want to like highlight and say, you, you know, this is one thing that you should take away? Or if there's something that maybe we missed that you want to leave our listeners with, what would it be? Well, I, I, the, the biggest thing really would be get prepared in advance. I mean, where, where, wherever you're at today, get prepared in advance. I mean, even if you're not even thinking about selling your company for years, take some time now and, and just get, get prepared and organized and understand what your picture looks like, what your business looks like to a third party, to someone that's not internal. I mean, that's really the biggest thing. The more prepared you are, the better the process is going to be, the better the value is going to be. And then I think the second thing is, is even if you're not looking today to do something, uh, don't be shy about interviewing some firms and find a firm that you can engage with now that can be uh, a part of your team so that when you are ready to pull the trigger, you know, you have someone that's uh, already come alongside you and, and ready to take action. Yeah. You know, it's, it's building the relationships before, you know, the actual the trench warfare starts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I think also market, you know, to, to kind of finalize that too, is like, even if you're building relationships with multiple people and multiple firms, people's, people's, you know, in your industry, people, you know, jump ship and switch shops a lot and everybody's resources are different and or workloads, right? If all of a sudden yeah. we got to a point where like someone said, hey, we're doing three deals right now and we, even though we knew them, they couldn't do it. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really understanding that like, you know, people shift around between different firms if they might've been working with someone, but also yeah. people's workload and there's a lot of activity going on right now. So you, like, let's say you and I had a good relationship for two years and all of a sudden you're doing three deals, you might actually not physically be able to take another one. That's on. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you hope that, and, and that's true. And that's, that is, can be particularly challenging when you're dealing with like a one office operation. Actually, this is kind of full circle to, you know, why I started Vercor to begin with years ago. It was also that in the middle market, it's hard to find firms that, that share the same values that we do, but also have a national footprint. So, and since we've got offices around the U.S., uh, it, it, it would be difficult, for example, for us to be at a spot where, we didn't have capacity to take on deals, but that that is a challenge when you're dealing with kind of a one office operation. Can be a challenge is is not having the capacity for sure. Yeah, I think it's just build the relationships now and you know <laughs> go into it with eyes wide open. What what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Yeah, best way is email, of course, first, mark at vercor.com, which is V-E-R-C-O-R, V like Victor, E-R-C-O-R.com. Sidebar, Vercor is the name of a mountain range in Europe. And when we started it, it was all built around, we're a guide. You know, it's kind of like we're taking you on a, on a mountain climb and we're going to do all the heavy lifting, but, you know, you come along for the journey. So that's the sort of history behind that. But mark at Vercor.com. My direct line, 770-851-9952 uh, is also a great way to reach me as well. Mark, I had a blast. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. It was great hanging out with you, man. Well, if you're listening right now, you were able to survive that mountain of information and the fire hose of stuff that Mark was able to walk through. And I hope you took away some of the biggest things is, and I don't even know if I have to repeat myself much here because prepare, know what you want, 
treat your company like you're going to sell it and realize what the investment bankers have to do in order to get us as entrepreneurs prepped. Because most of the time people walk in, I want to sell. They don't have any of that stuff ready. They have no idea. And they, we, we as entrepreneurs think that we can do a lot of stuff ourselves. And just to realize that this is one of those things that is usually not very beneficial for us to just take and run by the seat of our pants. Because listen to the details all the way down to that purchase agreement after the whole process is you can shoot yourself in the foot at almost every turn if you don't have someone there that understands what they're doing. So the more education, the more prep that you do ahead of time, the more you put yourself in the driver's seat and the higher probability is that you get what you want. This is a huge plug for us. This is why I created Growth and Exit Planning with Jim and Brandon. And this is why we're doing what we're doing because to go in eyes wide open, going in prepped will give you all the opportunities to come out with the best outcome. So go on the GEXP Collaborative website, check out our white papers, the ultimate guides that are gonna be coming out. Please rate me on iTunes, spread the word because this is gonna be the biggest decision that you ever make. And so prepping and educating yourself ahead of time is what we're here for. So until next week, I hope you have a good one.